Hey everybody. So we had an amazing convergence last time. Unfortunately, the audio got messed up. And so I'm recording this from home. This is the talk, a spirituality of being alone, recorded from my house. Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university students, college students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. This is a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. We're so glad you're here. I want to explore a spirituality of being alone. Now, this, by the way, is not unrelated to the last talk on a spirituality of being together. It's not even its opposite. The two are inextricably bound together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we spent a lot of time hearing from at the previous Convergence, said these two provocative things. First, whoever cannot stand being in community should be aware of being alone. And then this, whoever cannot be alone should be aware of community. Somehow our ability to be alone impacts our ability to be together and vice versa. So tonight I want to explore a spirituality of being alone. Maybe one of the first things to note is that very early on in the Bible, we're told this in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. God's not good pronouncement is particularly striking because the whole of Genesis 1 is filled with God saying, and it was good, and it was good, over and over again. So on the one hand, we have God speaking of being alone as not good. On the other hand, however, when God comes in the flesh, we see Jesus day after day withdrawing from people in order to be alone. So somehow a healthy spirituality of being alone must exist between the not good aloneness of Genesis and the good example of Jesus' aloneness that we see in the Gospels. I think one of the first things to note then, drawing on the Genesis passage, is that we were not created to live in isolation. The first human did not withdraw for a time, but rather had no community at all. So when I speak of solitude, I mean by solitude, the act of being alone for a period of time, as opposed to isolation, which is an act of being alone as a mode of existence. One act is positive, the other negative. This negative solitude, isolation, is, in fact, a cruel way that our society punishes, dare I say tortures, people. We call it solitary confinement. This is forced isolation. Solitary confinement is also referred to as the whole. It is not coincidental that the language is nearly identical to the picture, the word picture that we use for despair. We talk about the pit of despair. Isolation is despair. And this, as Genesis tells us, is not good. Jesus, on the other hand, withdrew. This is the positive side of solitude. Withdrawal means that he took intentional time to be alone and then later returned to communal life. 
But this, unfortunately, doesn't clear everything up for us when talking about solitude, because most of us jump almost immediately to the categories of introversion and extroversion. But as I mentioned in the email sent a few days before the convergence, these categories can muddy the waters for us. Why? Because it is possible to be by yourself, like an introvert, but not really experience solitude. And it's also possible to be in a crowd like an extrovert and not feel any sense of community, but rather feel acutely alone. So here are some questions for us to consider. Has the introvert who hangs out by themselves and endlessly plays video games or scrolls through reels for hours on end or spends the night trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix actually experienced solitude? Or has the person who is with a group who are laughing and seem to have a great time, but who, while in the midst of these people, feels a gnawing inward sense of aloneness, actually experienced community? I contend that solitude is not, especially in our age, an issue of introversion or extroversion. People are distracted when they are alone and feel isolated when they are together. I think the question of how we experience time can be a good indicator for the health of both our time alone and our time together. So I hate reels. Now don't mistake what I'm saying though. This doesn't mean that I don't watch them. If I didn't watch them, I wouldn't hate them. The problem is once I start watching them, I can't stop watching them. And my kids actually have the same feeling. They realize and tell me that reels are incredibly addictive. But how do you feel after you've spent an embarrassing amount of time watching reels or videos on those websites that you delete from your history after watching or after endless and mindless scrolling. You probably feel dull and exhausted. I quoted Andy Crouch in the email I referenced that some of you received, but I'll quote him again. He writes this, we look back from a distance and our memories of our time spent there are strangely inert. If we can remember the experience at all, it seems that we were in some kind of alternate universe that cannot really touch or inform our own, which in fact is precisely true. Time becomes almost non-existent and is experienced, as Crouch says, in a way that cannot really touch or inform our own lives. We always leave these experiences exhausted and we oftentimes leave them feeling ashamed. This is the not good of aloneness. This type of being alone leaves you lonely, and loneliness was the pandemic before the pandemic. We are dying at an alarming rate from loneliness. Contrast this, however, with what is known as flow. Now, I love to run, and before moving here, I was running some relatively long distances. I tell some people that I love to run, and they tell me, I hate running, but I always ask them the same thing. How long did you keep at it? And the thing is with running that it's hard for us to get into. Your lungs and your legs aren't used to it. And even when I'm in the habit of running, I have to tell myself something near the beginning of every run. I say, don't judge the run by the first half mile. The first half mile is almost always terrible. But if you keep at it, your body settles into a rhythm and you can almost lose yourself, but not lose yourself in the sense that Crouch was talking about in an alternate universe, 
but lose yourself in this one. Your soul expands, not shrinks. And this is when you've hit flow. Sometimes people refer to this as a runner's high. Now, here's the thing. You can finish a 10-mile run and actually feel more alive than when you began. Your body, of course, might be tired, but something inside you comes alive. A similar thing happens to me sometimes in writing. I sometimes enter into a writing session with next to no ideas and a blank page, which is intimidating. But there were times when all of a sudden I hit flow. Ideas form and things easily come out of me, which I didn't even realize were inside me. And I have a hard time ending my writing because I've entered the zone. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't always get a runner's high and I don't always get in the zone of my writing. But the practice of those things shapes my life in a particular way and allows me to become a better runner and a better writer. But notice the difference between flow and the mindless activity that we so quickly enter into even when we are by ourselves. The difference, Crouch notes, is seen most clearly in the way they begin and the way they end. There is nothing easier than opening a browser or Snapchat or Netflix. This requires little to no effort and we're drawn to it. Sitting down to write or setting out for a run, however, is very different. You can enter them with great difficulty. In the activities that can bring us flow, we almost always face resistance at the front end. So Stephen Pressfield, in his book for artists called The War of Art, says that resistance is the key thing that works against artists, and it's the thing that we constantly need to fight. He writes, Resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, cajole. Resistance is protean. It will assume any form if that's what it takes to deceive you. It will reason with you like a lawyer or jam a nine millimeter in your face like a stick-up man. Resistance has no conscience. It will pledge anything to get a deal, then double-cross you as soon as your back is turned. If you take resistance at its word, you deserve everything you get. Resistance is always lying and always full of crap. Well, that's I'll put that word in. Things that bring flow are full of resistance at the front end. But what about how you exit a thing? So like I said, when we exit the thing that is keeping us from solitude, the rush wears off and we feel exhausted and often ashamed. Flow, the thing that we enter into with difficulty, is different though. Crouch says, when flow subsides, as it inevitably does, we are left with a sense of gratitude, humility, and even awe. We feel strangely okay. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because true solitude, a solitude beyond introversion, is the thing that can bring flow to our lives, but it is also the thing that most of us resist at almost every turn. It's hard to enter, and there are a million other things vying for our attention. It's something, in other words, that you have to fight to enter. Maybe the question here is, why is it so difficult for us to be alone, to enter solitude? Henry Nouwen says two important things here that I come back to again and again. 
The first is this. We suffer from a fear of the empty space, he says. We are so concerned with being useful, effective, and in control that a useless, ineffective, and uncontrollable moment scares us and drives us right back to the security of having something valuable to do. We're afraid of the empty space, of a moment in which we are not in control and not useful. Do you remember Peter at the transfiguration? He sees Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And Peter says this, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. What? Peter is witnessing an unbelievable moment. And his response is, potentially on the Sabbath, no less. Should I build something? This is absurd. But Peter, like us, didn't know what to do when he wasn't useful. Why? Because as now and says, we're so used to defining ourselves in the wrong way. We believe these lies. Now and says, I am what I do. I am what other people say about me. I am what I have. He goes on to add another two. I am my greatest failure and I am my greatest success. We are afraid of the silence because we are so used to building our identity based on what we do or how many likes we have and so on and so on. The silence confronts the false ways that we build our identities. Who are we if we're not doing something? But now one says something else too. He says this, quote, But even stronger than our fear of the empty space is our fear of actually hearing the voice of God. We know that God is a jealous God who knows there is no other cure for our restlessness and deafness but finding our home in God. We know that God's mercy is a severe mercy that does not coddle or spoil, but cuts to the heart where the truth resides. And although we are unsatisfied and unfulfilled, we are not so sure that we want to go in the direction God might call us to go. Is it possible that we resist being alone because we're afraid of what God might ask of us? Afraid that God's love might call us to a better place, but one that, like flow, always feels difficult to enter at first. The truth about being alone is that we're never actually alone. Bonhoeffer says this, This time for meditation does not allow us to sink into the void and bottomless pit of aloneness. Rather, it allows us to be alone with the word. Now, when Bonhoeffer says the word here, he doesn't mean the Bible. He means Jesus. Notice his words here about the void and the bottomless pit of aloneness. This is solitary confinement, being utterly alone. A spirituality of being alone, however, lets us know that we're not alone. The sense of confinement which leads to loneliness and despair is not ours. Rather, we are alone with God who wants to draw us out of our distracted lives and into a wide open space. And do you know what God speaks to us in the silence? God says the same thing over us that was spoken over Jesus at his baptism. He says, you are my beloved. When we get away from the noise, the word somehow deep in our soul says, you are not what you do. You are not 
what other people say about you. You are not what you have. You are not your greatest success. You are not your greatest failure. You are the beloved of God. And as difficult as it is to enter the undistracted silence of solitude, this is how we leave reminded that we at the very core of our being are the beloved of God. This doesn't mean that we always leave having an intense mystical encounter. Bonhoeffer writes, above all, it is not necessary for us to have any unexpected, extraordinary experiences while meditating. That can happen, but if it does not, this is not a sign that the period of meditation has been unprofitable. When I run, sometimes I experience flow, sometimes I don't. But my time spent running always transforms me into a better runner. Our time alone with God is like that too. Sometimes we experience incredible things, other times we don't. But our time is always fruitful in ways that we can't see. So, what does all of this have to do with community? Why does Bonhoeffer say whoever cannot be alone should be aware of community? He tells us, quote, those who take refuge in community while fleeing from themselves are misusing it to indulge in empty talk and distraction, no matter how spiritual this idle talk and distraction may appear. In reality, they are not seeking community at all, but only a thrill that will allow them to forget their isolation for a short time. It is precisely such misuse of community that creates the deadly isolation of human beings. Such attempts to find healing result in the undermining of speech and all genuine experience, and finally, resignation and spiritual death. End quote. Bonhoeffer says that we can use other people as a way of fleeing from ourselves and from letting God do God's work in our interior lives. And this is why solitude is so important, so that we don't continually distract ourselves from ourselves and from the inner work that needs to be done. Henry Nouwen perpetually reminds us that our true identity is the beloved of God. This is what God wants to speak over you when you are alone. And he says, imagine how beautiful it would be if you came from your time alone with God, knowing that you are the beloved. And I came from my time alone with God, knowing that I was the beloved. And that community was formed out of that experience. He calls this solitude greeting solitude. But he warns us that when we don't spend that time alone with God, being reminded who we really are and dealing with our interior lives, that we will come together and seek from each other what we can only get from God. This always ends in disaster. He calls this loneliness greeting loneliness. And so, perhaps a few questions for us to ponder. Are you afraid of the empty space? Are you perhaps afraid of something God might actually say to you? When you're by yourself, do you ever practice solitude or do you perpetually distract yourself from yourself and maybe from God? What would it mean for you to make a step toward solitude? Are you seeking something from a particular person or maybe people in general that can only be given to you by God?
Do you actually believe that you are the beloved daughter or beloved son of God? Some things to think and pray through. Amen. Hey, we'd love it if you joined us on October 20th for Convergent Conversations or November 3rd for our next Convergence. We'll see you there.